This week's podcast proudly brought to you by Kent Cartridge. See, I made the mistake of buying the cheapest shot shells I could find when I first started duck hunting, and I would literally I'd watch feathers fly off of birds as they gave me a middle finger and flew off unscathed. That's when I switched over to Kent, and I was bartending and waiting tables at the time in college, and money was tight, but Kent offered me a great product at a fair price, and I've never looked back. Of course, now we have uh, Fast Steel 2.0. They just released Fast Steel Plus for this upcoming season, and with Dove season on the horizon, we've got Steel Dove, and then Teal Steel for early teal season. Whatever your shotgunning needs are for this fall, Kent has you covered. You can find all of their products at Kent Cartridge. This week's show brought to you by Ducks Unlimited, an organization that I've been plugged into for, gosh, over 15 years now. From the Alaskan wilderness to the Atlantic Flyway, across America's Great Plains, and down the Mississippi Delta, Ducks Unlimited has been leading the way in wetlands conservation since 1937. The DU family has ensured the protection of over 16 million acres of waterfowl habitat. Think about that. So, come join us. You too can carry on DU's conservation legacy. Visit ducks.org to find your local event and join our volunteer team, Ducks Unlimited, the world's leader in wetlands conservation. Good morning, good morning, good morning. Cable Smith welcoming everybody into episode 709 of SCI's Lone Star Outdoors show presented by Mossberg. Thank you so much for being here. It is a pleasure, a treat, an honor to be here talking hunting, fishing, the great outdoors, and all that implies with you fine folks. So thanks for dropping by. Uh, We've got a great show lined up for you today, and I'll tell you all about it momentarily. But first, man, deer season ended for me. And the big buck kicked my butt. Yeah, it. Uh, I was out there for the last the last weekend, um, and uh, you know what? He never showed up. Actually, one day <laughs> I was playing the wind, and I regret this because I never could figure out which direction he was coming off of the neighbors onto our property. And it got to the point where I think he would just circle the entire feeder setup and make his decision on whether or not to come in. I mean, I sat on the ground, sat in the pop-up, sat in the open field, and yeah, it just, the day after the season ended, and I didn't have a daytime picture. I mean, the deer came in at 7.15 when the feeder went off, and he was there for five minutes as the sun's coming up. Legal shooting time, but, you know, then he's gone. Well, of course, the day after the season, he shows up at 7.15, and he stays an hour, freaking hour, just to taunt me. Uh, but yeah, I, I regret Saturday morning. I sat at uh, the big chingone at a different setup, had a really nice nine point there that I would have been happy to shoot last weekend. And, um, the nine point of course came in an hour before the sun came up and the big boy showed up at the pop-up, uh, right on cue, but I wasn't there because of the wind. And I, being the last weekend, I don't know, maybe I should have just said, screw the wind, you know? Uh, hindsight's twenty twenty, but you know, if I'd have sat there, he probably wouldn't have come in anyway. So 
I parked in different places. I parked far away, walked in every time. This past weekend, walked in with uh, armor sight, night vision goggles every time. Hopped fences, walked through Mesquite Flats, sat on the ground, froze my butt off. Had oh, Super cool. Had does walk by like literally less than 10 yards away as they're coming in. And I'm just sitting on the ground under a mesquite tree. Uh, that was exciting. And I was like, he's going to come in on Sunday morning. It was like 20. The wind chill was, it was like 20 degrees. It felt like I was like, he's coming in. He's coming in. <laughs> nah. So it was a great season. Shot three whitetail and a coos deer. Can't complain. Uh, but man, that was, that buck kept me up at night. Last thing I thought about before bed. First thing I thought about when I woke up, checking my trail camera images. Uh, and uh, yeah. They don't get big by being stupid. Unfortunately, the, the neighbors where he he lives, uh, they're MLD, so they've still got another month of rifle season. Hope he makes it. <laughs> Hope he sticks around. Ah, it is what it is. It was a great season, and I had fun messing with that deer. I think he, uh, I think he had fun messing with me too, though. Uh, but anyway, what are we doing today? Let me tell you, you know what to do by now. Pull up that stool a little closer to the old campfire. Pour yourself another cup of that Black Rifle coffee out of Granddaddy's beat-up old Stanley Thermos because we are ready to rock and roll. And joining us here momentarily are Trey and Marshall Colvin, uh, father-son from South Texas, passionate hunters. And Marshall recently had a quite the scare, one that I think will put the fear of God in most parents' And might make you educate your children on what to do if uh, they suffer a severe wound and uh, severe blood loss. Because that's what happened to Marshall after getting cut up by a big boar javelina. Yeah. So uh, I think from a father's standpoint, uh, Trey will... It's going to be... It might tug at your emotions a little bit hearing them recount that situation so get ready for that uh, and then we're going to talk some stocking what's going on with our texas parks and wildlife stocking program specifically it's rainbow trout time uh, a non-native species that texas parks and wildlife stocks throughout the state this time of year and inland fisheries isaiah ringen will be here uh, he'll give us the lowdown he works at the hatchery where these fish come into texas because like i said we don't have them <laughs> so they're coming from somewhere where do we get them? How big are they? Do any of these fish survive the summer if they're not caught? Uh, logistics of the program, all that stuff, and even uh, favorite trout recipes. We'll get into it with Isaiah at the bottom of the hour. So yeah, that's what's on the docket for today. I'm certainly excited about it. Going to be a great show, guarantee you that. Uh, let's do a quick giveaway. How about a set of Vortex scope rings? These are the uh, precision Scope rings, they retail for like 140 bucks, and uh, you probably need them for your newest rifle scope. So just email Vortex, real simple, Vortex to Lone Star Outdoor Show at gmail.com. We'll throw in a Vortex cap and t-shirt as well uh, to go along with the precision scope rings. Coming up next, Trey and Marshall Coleman join us right here on SCI's Lone Star Outdoor Show. In 
market for a compact track loader, check out the Bobcat Advantage, where Bobcat track loaders squared off against other brands in a variety of tests and challenges. Whether you're looking for performance advantages, uptime protection, or quality design, Bobcat compact track loaders are the best built machines in the industry. But don't take our word for it. Watch the videos at BobcatAdvantage.com or see Bobcat machines in person at one of our nine North Texas locations. Visit BobcatOfNorthTexas.com or call 469-586-0000 today. There's a little Reckless Kelly bringing us back on SCI's Lone Star Outdoor Show, presented by Mossberg Firearms. Cable Smith here with you. Thanks for dropping by today. This segment brought to you by Vortex. You know, I've, I've told you for a while about that 10% off code over at Euro Optics, and that is good for 10% off any of uh, Vortex's glass. Even better is that right now Euro Optic is offering 15% off, and I was like, well, why am I going to tell you guys about 10% off if they are offering 15% off, which is a better deal? So I, I reached out to Vortex. You know what they said? Euro Optics will stack the codes. So that's 25% off. 15%, 10%. I'm not good at math, but that's 25% off any Vortex SKU over there. Nah, there might be one or two that are, I got to be honest. It said almost all. So I don't know what that means. Didn't look, but I figured I'd let you guys know if you want to save 25% off Rifle scopes, binos, spotting scopes, red dots, scope rings, you name it. 25% off over at eurooptic.com. All right, with that being said, let's bring on our first guest today, a father and son combination joining us from way down on the Texas border. It is my pleasure to welcome Trey and Marshall Colvin to the show. Good to be here. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Yeah, my, my pleasure, guys. My pleasure. So where are you joining us from today? We're in the Rio Grande Valley, deep South Texas. We're in Brownsville today, although we, we live in a little town called San Benito. Okay. San Benito. I think I've, I've actually, I think I've been there. Uh, one time when I was telling you, I turkey hunt down in the Uteria outside of Raymondville and my buddy had a lease and it was, I know we went through San Benito and it was this really unique place where the sand the, the ranch was all white sand really like and you had to drive it was something like i've never seen in texas and you know there's vegetation growing in it. obviously they have cattle and stuff there but it was hard to drive a truck through um and i, I don't know is, is that rem, like rem, reminiscent of where you guys are at uh yeah to some extent i mean there's mm -hmm. so many unique places down here that are unlike anywhere else in texas for sure i don't know about the white sand specifically although the place we're hunting on now on the el sal's is strange just because there's so much sand and you can just as likely see a bunch of crabs getting out of the way of the jeep as you can you know uh -huh. rabbits and night jars so yeah you know but it yeah. but this place that we went it wasn't like it was right next to the coast it, it, at some point in history it had to have been right um, yeah but anymore very unique that's the truth mm -hmm. well yeah thanks for uh jumping on and and i wanted to visit with you guys because uh y'all had an a pretty scary situation here recently. Marshall, how old are you? I'm 13. And how long have you been hunting with your dad? 13 years. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. I'm, my son just turned 11 and I have pictures of him in a stroller in a dove field 
my wife's at work. I'm like, well, I'm going dove hunting. So I guess my, you know, infant son is going dove hunting too. Sounds uh, like us. Yeah. Yeah. So have you, uh, have you shot, what, what all have you hunted for yourself so far? I've shot a couple bucks. I've shot some doe. I haven't got a bull no guy yet, but we're going to try. I've shot a cow no guy, coyote. Nice. Do you guys turkey hunt too? Yes, sir. Not, we don't do much of the spring, you know, call it on a thing, but it's more, you know, just opportunity. If, you know, opportunity you see one at a deer shooting during the regular season. Yeah. Uh-huh. Okay. Well, so where, and where do you guys hunt at? Well, for years on the Uteria, on the, all the Uteria or a bunch of the Uteria ranches. And now we're on, um, we're on a lease that basically goes from all the South side of 186 east of Raymondville out toward Port Mansfield. Uh-huh. So about 40, 48,000 acres, just a huge, very vast place, which when you're having an incident like we did recently, you realize just how big it actually is. Mm-hmm. Trying to get yep. to trying to get a kid safe. Yeah. Well, and before we get into that, and I don't want to get too political here, but have you noticed being right on the border there? Have you noticed like a lot of illegal activity on on your lease, or or not? No, not not specifically on on this lease. The leases that are tighter to to the highway that runs north south seventy seven through the main ranch land, I think those end up being more the corridors to get past the like Sarita checkpoint in those, those areas, we saw way more traffic on, on the Uterias, frankly, than in, and, you know, got a bunch of stories about just having, watching people, you know, run down a Sendera or whatever there, but here we really haven't seen anything yeah. like that. Well, I'm taking my son next week to uh, my buddy's place in Encinal to try to get him a late season buck. And, um, they found they found a dead guy on their place. He died of heat exhaustion. They was just sitting under a tree, just dead. And then one time, they pulled in the main gate, and uh, and this is all low fence place. And they, I'm trying to remember what he saw footprints. Well, what he realized was the guy was there, but they were the footprints were around the feeder, and they figured out that they were charging their cell phones off of the feeder battery. Oh, uh, <laughs> yeah. well, that's yeah, we've. Yeah. Seen- We've seen evidence where you've got empty water jugs and you kind of see where people have stopped and, mm. you know, camped and stuff that we've never, we've never run into, into anybody on the, on the LSAs actually. Yeah. Well, how they, how he, how he knew they were charging their uh, cell phone was they, you know, ha- obviously got a picture of them and he, he had this cord and he was standing by the feeder. He's like, he put two and two together. He's like, that guy's charging his cell phone off the deer feeder. That's unreal. Yeah. yeah. Um. So you guys were, what were you hunting when the, the accident actually happened. Well, I was trying to shoot just like a pig or maybe a big buck with my, uh, or a javelina with my bow. Uh-huh. And a javelina walked in. And you shot it. And I shot it. And then it ran off down my right side. And I tried to, I, I, it was a good shot. It would have probably died if I just let it bleed out. But I followed it up. Looked, I found him under this tree that was kind of grown over uh-huh. and crouched under and his eyes opened and he was just like on top of me in like a half a second. Wow. Wow. What do you think a javelina weighs? 40 pounds? Something like that? This was a big male. I found it the next morning after this whole thing happened, actually about eight or 10 feet from his hat laying in the dust. Uh-huh. Uh, Cause we left. I mean, when I, 
went and got him. We obviously left all of his gear in the field. So I was going back to try to retrieve everything. But I mean, it had died right there under the same little, you know, little canopy overhang of brush that this whole, where this whole thing happened. But I don't know, I'd say, yeah, 35, 40 pounds, something like that. This was on the bigger size. Well, I don't think most hunters, you know, unless you're from the Southwest or spent some time here around collared peccary, uh, I, I don't think folks understand just how long and how sharp their cutters can be. Not only the size, but how, you know, you, we, we pay more attention. I mean, I've been around in my whole life, literally, but you pay more attention after you see what they are capable of doing. And they, the way those, the way those jaws come together, it's like a perfect shear, you know? Yeah. So it's, it's really, it just shredded his arm. Did you stumble back and it actually got on top of you, Marshall? Well, I stumbled back after it had gotten off me because I had to stab it a couple of times with my knife that was on my belt. Mm -hmm. And I still have my knife in my hand. And I went out the other side of this overgrown tree, tripped over this young sapling and broke it and threw my knife somewhere. And we're still trying to look for it. But mm. So he got you on your arm. Yes. And that was that the only place where he actually cut you? We think so. Well, yeah, he just got my arm, but I have two little punctures on my leg. But we think that's from when I fell over the tree. I cut myself on the tree a little bit. Oh, wow. And uh, immediately just bleeding? Pretty much. And so what went through your mind at that point? Like, did you know you were hurt bad? I, when it first happened, I just saw the top and there were like little cuts that weren't too bad. Uh-huh. And then I flipped it over and it was just wide open and it was oh, pretty scary. I'm sure. I'm sure. And so what, how, how far away were you, uh, Trey? And, and what, how did that play out after he's been wounded by this, uh, Amelina? Yeah. I mean, this is definitely a story with a lot of, you know, 2020 hindsight takeaways, but I was too far away. I'll put it that, put it that way. I mean, I was probably 10, 10 minutes by Polaris, uh, hunting his little brother for a cow nail guy. And we were just about to pull the trigger when one of my closest, be you know, best friends who I own a boat with <clears throat> who I'd left in the Polaris came. I saw this just, you know, cloud of dust with him coming up and he blew up our whole nail guy hunt. And I thought this is, this can't be good. Mm -hmm. He had gotten the call from Marshall on my phone, which I had left in the Polaris. And, uh, he's like, we gotta, you know, we gotta go. And uh, so it was a, you know, probably the longest 10 minute Polaris ride. You know, I basically flew a Polaris to try to, you know, get, get to him as quick as I could and yeah. FaceTimed him on the way, just cause I wanted to see what he was dealing with. And as soon as I, as soon as FaceTime connected, I mean, it was like something out of Lord of the flies and, you know, I mean, he, he had his shirt off and his hair was all matted with blood, had blood all over his face and, you know, mud on him and stuff. And he had his belt around his arm and, he said, dad, you got to help me. And in a way that for all the dads out there, I mean, that I will never, I will never forget. And, uh, you know, I know what, how tough a kid he is, but it was, you know, it, I said, elevate it, sit down, I'm coming, you know, you, you stay awake. I think it was the only other thing I said. And I mean, we just basically did, you know, did everything to move, move heaven. Did you stay on the phone the whole time. I didn't stay on the phone the whole time because we were just going to make so much noise. You know, the uh -huh. that's the side by side just so loud, you know, and I just, I said, yeah. I'm coming, you know, and I'm sure uh, that was the longest 10 minutes of your life. It really was. It it honestly was. And I've 
been in a few situations like that before just hunting around the world over, you know, and different things, but nothing like where it's your own kid. I mean, it's, you know, different, different, different level of focus. <laughs> and Marshall, how did you know at 13 years old to make a tourniquet? Well, we've been hunting and fishing for a while, and I think we've talked about it before. But I just I knew it was used as a to to stop bleeding. Yeah, and so you put it above the wound and tightened it up. Yep, I put it right, kind of right here. Right on your like a bicep area. Man, well, I mean that's smart on you. I don't know that a lot of thirteen-year-old kids would have the uh, the knowledge to to take their belt off and and put it above the wound you know um i don't know i don't do you think that it saved his life um i really think i i don't know uh the truth is cable i i mean if thank god this was not an arterial bleed i thought it might be when i first saw him because there was just so much blood i mean he left he left a blood trail that was kind of unbelievable um and I think if it had been arterial, I don't think we would have gotten to him at all. And, uh, and that was actually in my mind on the drive. Cause when, when I saw it, I was thinking, you know, he's not going to have it tight enough, even if, you know, if, if that's what it is. But as soon as we saw it, I mean, we wrenched it tighter and, you know, and we were still 15 minutes from camp probably, but I'd kind of gotten a little bit of the mindset. Well, you know, I'm only 15 minutes from camp, but as it turns out, 15 minutes is a, is a heck of a long time when your kid's, you know, bleeding to death. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so in spite of having all the first aid trauma kits and stuff in, in the boats and places where you think something like this is going to happen, you know, I didn't really have what I needed. I don't think I, I mean, I have one in my truck, a basic first aid kit, right? Which I don't, I don't, I just drive the truck around the leases. Um, so I have that covered. And then when I'm in the back country, I have one. But it's still, you know, say you drop your kid off and just like you, like the first aid kit doesn't stay with the kid, right? Um, it's still far enough away where it might be an issue. Yeah, I mean, I'm just thinking about my own situation. Would I have the first aid kit close enough to Henry, for example? I don't know. But I am going to have a talk with him about what to do if he needs to make a tourniquet. You know, like I, I don't, I've, he's just turned 11. I've never had that conversation with him that's why I wanted to have you guys on because I think it's so important. It, it really is. And, you know, I've since obviously the stocking stuffer of our house for 2023 was the cat tourniquet. I don't know how many we bought at this point to, and uh, given away, away, given away, but you know, I had two on the catamaran where we're spearfishing off of and that kind of stuff. I mean, I, I have all that stuff in that place where you think somebody's going to get a shaft through their leg or get bit by something. Uh -huh. uh, but didn't have it in the Polaris. I mean, and honestly, just the tourniquet, once we got to him, would have changed this thing completely because a belt sounds good, but you just can't keep the the pressure consistent. So it, it was, uh, you know, my buddy was sitting in the back seat, basically holding, you know, holding his arm out and and holding the, holding the tourniquet with one hand. And he had his elbow like this and was keeping Marshall awake the whole drive back, sitting behind me saying, you know, hey, buddy, you know what, you know, Tell me about that javelina. Just you know, just talking to him the whole way, the whole way back to the camp, and I only glanced back a couple of times because I was so focused on driving. But you know, there were probably twice where I just felt like I had to look back to make sure he was alive. Honestly, yeah. Um, that a couple of glimpses 
that you'll understand as a dad, you know, you just you'll never forget a couple of those mental images from that, that evening where I was going, really kicking myself for not having a tourniquet because with it not being arterial, in spite of the fact that I could see his bone down into this two inch laceration, that was just, I mean, this thing just flayed his arm open. Um, you know, a tourniquet would have been a game changer here. Certainly. Uh, but thankfully, once again, Marshall had the wherewithal, the knowledge to fasten his belt into a makeshift tourniquet. Um, he's far from out of the woods, though, as you will, I'm sure, describe in the next segment. Uh, what happens when y'all get get back to camp and then the hospital ride? I know that was pretty uh, hairy as well. We'll discuss that next. That segment brought to you by the Mossberg Patriot Ruggedly American-Built Hunting Rifles from America's oldest family-owned firearm manufacturer. You can find everything from the 22250 up to a 375 Ruger right there at Mossberg.com. We'll be right back on SCI's Lone Star Outdoors show. Turn off the seatbelt sign Bring me a scotch and a lime Till I'm high enough to forget Cause I ain't over Fort Worth yet Let me tell you about the Armorside 640 contractor. It is the industry-leading thermal technology in a very user-friendly rifle scope. A 640 Armor Core 12 Micro made in the USA Thermal Core. It's got a four-hour onboard recording, four-hour runtime on a full charge, USB and Wi-Fi streaming, uh, eight user-selectable reticles and six-color palettes, and the most user-friendly interface out there because you're operating these things in the dark. So uh, that's very important. You can find the contractor, the 640, or its little brother, the 320, right there at armorsite.com. Looking for a thermal hog hunt near DFW? Then Three Curl Outfitters has you covered. Offering fully guided thermal hunts just minutes south of Dallas, guide scout daily to put you on the bacon. Using thermal imaging technology to hunt feeders, crop fields, and river bottoms, you get unlimited hogs and no kill fees. Visit www.3curl.com. Also offering corporate hunts and food and lodging available by request. Book at 3curl.com or call 214-455-0940. Don't tell me the sky is blue. That's the music of Matt Daniel bringing us back on SCI's Lone Star Outdoors show. Weatherman, the name of that one. I'm Cable Smith. Thanks for being here. I uh, actually met Matt. He was bartending at a, uh, a little restaurant bar in Seymour, Texas. I was on the way to the Deer Lease. And I think God, it was in November. I, I remember that. But I don't recall who what football game was on. But I was like, I, I want to watch the second half of this game. I'd been like a Thursday night game or something. And uh, so I stopped in there because we don't have a TV at the lease, obviously. Had a chicken fried steak and a margarita and uh, started visiting with Matt. And I, I think it was somehow we got on the the topic of Hank's Texas Grill in McKinney and that it was closing. And he was like, oh, yeah, man, it's so sad. I've I've opened up a couple times there. I do a little guitar picking. I was like, wait a second. You, you play music? And he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've opened up for – he proceeded to list a bunch of the bands that have been right here in the studio over the years, uh, bands that you were fans of and you, you know all too well. 
And, uh, and I was like, well, that's cool, dude. Well, he was like, yeah, I'm on Spotify. So I uh, went and checked it out and yeah, shout out, Matt. Hope all is well, my friend. This segment of the show is brought to you by the Stealth Cam Deceptor Wireless Trail Camera. You can find it in their entire lineup of trail cameras at stealthcam.com. All right, let's pick it back up with Trey and Marshall Colvin. Marshall's been gored by a wounded javelina, and uh, they have now made it back to camp uh, where things continue to get even more dicey, and we'll pick it up there. Well, we had we had three gates to get through from where he was, where he was bit, and and this thing actually grabbed him and shook him, and Marshall, you know, had to stab it to get it off of him. But we, at the very first gate, I called the, you know, the 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 ranch manager for for lack of a better word, and told her what we were coming in with, you know, really quickly. So she was she was calling 911 and getting the ambulance in route. Cause I knew that was going to be paramount because we were far enough away that if we didn't have significant help on arrival, we were going to be potentially dealing with a fatality. Mm-hmm. And uh, so she was, she was doing that and we just were throwing gates open and leaving them open and going as quick as we could. And really, I just, you know, have to thank God that there were two anesthesiologists who were there hunting from Austin who were in camp at the time that she rounded up. We still didn't really have a proper tourniquet, but as I pulled through the gate, which they were smart enough, the last gate at the camp that they were smart enough to open for us, which I've never come through that gate quite so fast as we did that night. But I mean, we came in like it was a full on race car pit stop and there were probably 15 people right there at what we call processing where you bring nil guy and stuff in and I mean, as soon as I hit the brakes, there were people on both sides of the Polaris pulling him out and we were transferring him very quickly to the back of a pickup truck. And that was honestly probably the scariest part because I, I had I had wrestled with the idea of do I I didn't I didn't have enough knowledge cable to know whether I should lay him down in the back of the Polaris or whether, you know, because I thought, well, maybe in this situation with this wound where it is feet up doesn't didn't make sense to me just intuitively. And so I didn't do that, but in retrospect, I was supposed to lay him down and have his feet elevated. But as soon as we got him out of the Polaris and he stood up, he passed out and had a mini seizure and started making noises and was bleeding on the Kalichi. And I literally thought at that point I was going to watch my son die on this Kalichi road at camp. But these two anesthesiologists were pretty amazing. I mean, the one guy just grabbed him by the arm where he could put pressure directly on where the artery, where the brachial artery is. And they, they switched the tourniquet over to, or they switched the leather belt that Marshall had been using to sort of, you know, one of those webbing belts that I think they could maintain better pressure on. And we got him in the back of that truck and uh, it, it was, it was, it was just kind of an unbelievable situation at that point. But those two doctors were truly amazing. Dr. Kim is one of their names and I haven't, been able to talk to him because he let he left early the next morning so i never saw him and marshall was in surgery that night you know until mm-hmm. two or three o'clock in the morning so we were tied up but um but then it was just a crazy truck ride to get out on 186 and meet the ambulance which we met on the shoulder and you know did a big u-turn flagged them down apparently i was trying to wave down the ambulance and almost fell out of the back of the truck marshall told me this whole story later i didn't remember any of this you know that part of it and then you think, you know, you're going to be in. But Marshall came, Marshall's 
he's back in with with the living now like uh you said he passed out so he came he, to he did but at some point i mean i was i was i have i was up near his head in the in the bed of of this pickup truck that we had transferred him to from the polaris and so i'm sort of cradling you know trying to hold his you know sort of c-spine area and everything still and, I, and i'm talking to him upside down just saying basically telling him how much i loved him and mm -hmm. And hey, you know, buddy, you got to stay with me. God, you're making me tear up. Jeez, and it was, it was, it was like, it it was a, it was a crazy time for us because Marshall's not the, you know, the chattiest guy in the world. But um, you know, we probably said more with fewer words that night on the ride, you know, in that ambulance than we ever have in 13 years. Yeah, man, man. So you get to the hospital in in Raymondville, or where was the closest hospital? We actually blew through straight through Raymondville. The the EMTs were were from the ambulance was from Valley Baptist, which is really the closest real trauma center that we've got. Okay. Arlington, for folks that don't know, from where we are, I mean, it's a solid forty five minute ride, and I mean that was really really long because you you, you have at least I have this I ha I had <laughs> this thought that once you got to an ambulance, you were going to be in the hands of professional care. And depending on where you are, that may not necessarily be true. I mean, we got to this ambulance and not to denigrate these folks who did their best to try to help, but they couldn't find the tourniquet when we first got to the ambulance. So there was a big search for the tourniquet inside the back of the ambulance. And then the EMT didn't know how to use it. I ended up actually threading the tourniquet for the EMT to get it secure on Marshall's arm because he kept, you know, yanking it not threaded correctly. And it was just, he was causing Marshall a lot of pain, which frankly, at that point, I was a little bit glad for just because I wanted him to be conscious. Yeah. Um, but once we got the tourniquet on and I could tell pretty quickly then that we did not have any bleeding, although he looked so white that I was still really concerned about the level of blood loss, but then they hooked him up to the monitor inside the ambulance where I could see that his blood pressure was rising once they had him on on an IV, um, you know, my dad part was settling to some extent just in the ambulance ride. Cause I felt like his vitals looked really stable. Yeah. Um, but yeah, they took us to Harlingen. And so that was, and we got there with tell, tell him about that. I mean, we got there with a couple of other traumas. Some two kids had gotten rolled over by a horse that night. So there were, we got there with a bunch of crazy stuff going on at the same time. Oh, man. <clears throat> What's your memory yeah. of the hospital? Well, I don't remember a lot, but we I remember them pushing me out of the ambulance and going through the room. And I remember going down the hallway and then we sat in the ER room for a while waiting for the surgery on the kids that got rolled over by a horse to get done. Oh. So we were there for a long time. Like a little while to like one AM. But the my son broke his arm playing soccer. He broke his ulna in his radius. I was actually in Brady deer hunting. My wife's a nurse practitioner. She calls. She goes, Henry just broke his arm. And I'm like, in the soccer game? She's like, yeah. Um, I said, how do you know? She goes, I'm, I'm looking at his at his wrist, and I'm a medical professional, you moron. You know, like, it's broken. <laughs> I was like, ah. Oh. And you feel, and I, this is, my son wasn't going to die, right? But I was out of town, and I was like, really, I almost was like, told them, I, I need to go. Um, but she was like, it's going to be okay. But they were at the hospital all night long because they had to, they started to push on it and he passed out from the pain. So they, we have to put him to sleep to set this thing. 
Um, but yeah, I, I know that all night my wife said she called me as I was getting up to get in the deer blind the next morning. And she was like, we're on our way home. And I was like, I'm on my way to go hunting, you know, Ugh, there's nothing worse. Yeah, no, I mean, you know, they triaged the situation and there were a couple of kids and somebody else who, you know, were, were ahead of him because the, frankly, the trauma surgeon came out really quickly and said, told me as within probably 30 minutes of arrival that there was no arterial bleed and there was no nerve damage, which was mm -hmm. just a huge relief to me. And frankly, I didn't even understand how that was possible given just the visual of what this wound looked like. I thought, I mean, I was thinking he was for sure going to be taking some time to bounce back, but it's amazing how quick this 13 year old has healed. I'm just looking at, so this is just the javelina that I, it's just a skull, but I would say those top cutters are, you know, almost two eh, inch and a half long. Uh, so that can definitely do some damage. What was the extent of the actual injury once you're in surgery and, and, and getting this wound patched back up? How many stitches? It was 25 stitches. Wow. Yeah. I think it was 20 on the bottom, and I had five little cuts on top that needed a stitch apiece. Yeah, all those, those top jaws that you just showed basically – put four or five big puncture wounds in the top of his arm that were, that were deep. Uh, and then the, where those two front teeth come together, it just completely shredded his, the, you know, the, the, the softer inside part of his arm. And yeah. I mean, that was, it was scary to see because I mean, it was literally flap, you know, flapping open to the point that you could see his bone when there wasn't just an unbelievable amount of blood coming out of him. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder what the infection concern was. I mean, I'm sure you got put on antibiotics or whatever, but I don't imagine a javelina's mouth is one of the cleanest uh, things out there. I, only, I think, maybe three of the little cuts on top got infected, and she had to pull the stitches out early. Oh, really? And I just had to keep cleaning them every night. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. And they're so not. Did you, did you have, was this on your left arm? Yeah, it was my left arm. And do you have a gnarly scar there or what? It's pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. Oh man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, so are you Marshall? Are you, uh, and I always ask people that have run-ins with wildlife. Uh, do you hold any ill will towards a javelina? No. What would you have done different? Not followed it up. I probably should have just let it just sat back where I shot it from and just let it bleed out until he got here yeah. there. Live and learn. I remember uh, I kind of taught myself how to deer hunt. My dad was a, is a bass fisherman. He's not a hunter. The first buck I ever shot, I first of all shot him when he was running. He kind of he slowed down for a second and looked at me, and I was like, I don't know. I shot him. Dropped to my knees and shot him. And then I watched him run into a thicket and bed down, and my dumb butt just walked over there and bumped him right out of there. And we found him five hours later dead, right? But if I just would have left him there, you know, it would, have, it would have been an easy recovery. He would have died right there. Yeah, the crazy thing about this, I mean, that javelina was literally on his last leg. This His arrow passed completely through it. He made a perfect shot right behind the shoulder. If he'd given this thing five minutes, probably, he would have been doing, you know, a photo op rather than a trip to the, you know, a very scary trip to the emergency room. Yeah. So, yeah, you know, le lesson learned. And, you know, for me and for everybody out there, I mean, like, I feel like, my kids are really, really capable and have hunted more than a lot of 
grown men, but you know, I've told him that I don't know how many times, <laughs> like, don't just wait for the follow-up until I'm there, but uh-huh. you never underestimate a kid getting excited, you know, for sure. For sure. And, um, what did, did you do anything with the javelina? We got a school mount. You did. Okay, cool. My buddy got bit by a rattlesnake on his porch in, uh, in Seymour. He walked, he walked out and, uh, there was an electrical storm. So he just stepped out on the patio to, to watch the lightning and like a little 12 inch rattler was up there to get warm and just tagged him. And he killed it and drove himself to the hospital. And then when he got back, he has it, he has it in a, in a glass jar, probably displayed in his, in his living room. How bad was that? Oh, he was in the hospital for a long time. Uh, I mean, like, let's say a week, but the amount of antivenom, I mean, thankfully his insurance covered it, but I mean, it was hundreds of thousands of dollars in antivenom. It was quite a pretty uh, spectacular hospital bill he racked up. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, but also he, he's out in the middle of nowhere in Seymour. I mean, that's a town, right? But there's no, uh, viable trauma center there. I don't remember where he drove to, but he drove a good 30, 45 minutes, drove himself, you know, uh, still things to think about when you're removed from, you know, medical help. It's uh, got to be prepared for sure. We're definitely thinking about it more. This was one that you don't, you don't come away from the same for sure. I don't know how, how many people I've heard of actually get attacked by javelina though. It's I've not never, very common. I mean, I've heard of, dogs getting gutted and seeing what they can do to a dog, you know, um, and have warned the kids for years. Like that's, that's a s- animal you've got to really pay attention to because they can spin around in a second and yeah, and tag you. But I've never actually heard of anybody actually getting bit. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Marshall, I'm glad you made a full recovery, man. Have you been hunting since the, since it happened? We went hunting the week after. <laughs> of course. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. He's still looking for his knife. We've been back a number of times. We found everything but the knife. But the knife. We found his arrow that had, that had gone past through the javelina. And uh-huh. yeah. it was eerie that next morning going back and seeing all of his stuff still sitting there. I was, you know, mm-hmm. it was a deal. But what did uh, what did Mama think about all of this? Well, Mom was home taking a nap when all of this actually went down. So she met us at the hospital. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, she's, she's very, very cool and, uh, understands our, you know, passion for it and the whole outdoor lifestyle, you know, she was not like, I think probably some spouses would be where they were, you know, just sort of mad at us all the way around. There was not any of that. It was just wanting to make sure he was fine. Yeah. What would you say? I think that's about right. I've never been in that situation with one of my kids, but my my favorite lab i've ever had we were duck hunting in oklahoma and um it was like one of those cold snaps that you get in north texas southern oklahoma that um rare for us where the ponds were frozen for like four days we had this hole cut out of this pond and i was letting her retrieve the ducks out of that and we actually had an ice eater like nobody in texas has an ice eater but this guy my buddy had one and it was keeping that little the little pothole open. I would let her swim in there. Was not letting her go out on the ice. And I went behind the blind to take a leak. And these mallards came in. So I ducked down and boom, 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 buddy shoot. And I see one land on the bank. It's dead. I'm like, Belle, bird. And she goes towards the duck and then boom, takes a 90 degree turn out onto the ice. I didn't see that there was a duck that landed out there. 
she gets out to the middle of his pond and I'm yelling at her, Hey, you know, she's on, she's like, I'm getting that duck. And she falls through and was in there for seven or eight minutes. Couldn't get out. And so then, you know, I'm now taking my, I'm thinking, well, dog's going to die or I'm going to go get the dog. And, uh, luckily the truck was, the truck was close and there was an ax in there. So I swam, I took all my clothes off, swam out there with the ax and started breaking the ice and got to her. She was fine. She swam right past me, went out on the bank and I was good until I, until I started going back and I was like, Oof, this is bad. So they took the extension cord from the ice heater and threw it to me. And then they, you know, helped me pull me in, had the heater running in the truck right there. So I ran jumped in the truck and after 15 minutes, I was good, but I'd say that's the hairiest, uh, situation I've ever been in. Um, as far as hunting goes way scarier than darting a rhino at 40 yards or, you know, hunting a Cape Buffalo. Uh, this was, this was like, I was thinking, and that went through my mind. Like why I asked you about how mama felt. I was like, I'm going to tell my wife and kids I killed their dog, you know, like <laughs> yeah, I've done that actually similar thing. Uh, not with ice, but, you know, have made the crazy run out swim thinking your dog was not okay where she'd actually gotten stuck on something, you know, had gotten her collar snagged on something and was mm. just treading water. But that that's a scary deal. But yeah, for me too, I mean, I've done the rhino dart and the Cape Buffalo and all of that. And like they say over there, it's the dead ones, they kill you. And that was certainly true even here for Al, yeah. you know? Yeah. Yeah. The leopard is the one that I think is top on my bucket list that I haven't done so expensive but uh they say i think you get 40 stitches for every second a leopard's on you i think is what the going rate is the price of doing business with a leopard that's actually what flashed in my mind when you were asking about the infection because you always hear you know that cat bites are by far you know the worst as far as all the you know nastiness that gets transferred into the into the wound but yeah a leopard would be would be really really terrible especially considering their back legs are trying to gut you the entire time that you're on the ground, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, guys, I appreciate the time, Marshall. I'm so glad that you made a full recovery. Uh, thank you for coming on and, and just, just serve as a reminder to folks, you know, Hey, have a tourniquet, be cognizant of these things. I'm going to have the conversation with my kids, which, you know, I probably wouldn't have done that. Uh, but it's something that we all need to think about as parents. So Marshall, you know, I'm glad you had the wherewithal to, to put your belt um, fasten a tourniquet out of that. Um, like I said, I don't think a lot of 13 year olds would have, they probably would have been so much shocked that they wouldn't have thought to do that anyway. So good on you, man. And, uh, hope you get that big bull nil guy sometime soon. I do too. Appreciate it, man. It's been, been great. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Y'all take care. Happy new year. Great, right, buddy. You good. So there you have it. Trey and Marshall Colvin. Wow. Man, when he said, uh, I thought I was going to watch my son bleed out on the Caliche Road, oof, that one got me. And from a javelina, too. You never know. Uh, but, yep, y'all be prepared. Hopefully that inspires some of us to uh, take measures to educate our kids on what to do if they do suffer a, a bad cut or puncture like Marshall did. That segment of the show brought to you by NUMA Outdoors. Check this out. Right now, they've got a 50% off sale going on on the NUMA outlet. And I've told you all about the Alpha Vertex system. It is the perfect mid-weight system, so early season bow hunts. And it's designed to be stealthy and uh, quiet for you, the bow hunter. But it's what I wear basically all season, unless it's just freaking, you know, balls cold, like under 25 degrees. Uh, and, and even then, I still wear it as my mid-weight and just throw on a jacket over it. 
Uh, but the Alpha Vertex is like 50% off right now. And you can find the uh, entire outlet sale at numaoutdoors.com. Up next, we're going to switch gears and talk a little inland fishing with Texas Parks and Wildlife's Isaiah Ringen. Specifically, it's rainbow trout stocking season. What does that mean exactly? And uh, what about the history of the trout stocking program? All that and much more after the break on the Lone Star Outdoor Show. Daddies don't just love their children every now and then. It's a love without end, amen. Some say a silenced gunshot is the baddest sound out there. At Silencer Central, we have another favorite. It's the sound of silence delivered to your front door. When you buy from Silencer Central, we handle your application, set you up with a free NFA gun trust, and deliver your silencer straight to you. With an average 90-day turnaround time when you use e-forms, buying a silencer is simpler than ever. Visit silencercentral.com and we'll help you get started. Cable Smith welcoming everybody back into SCI's Lone Star Outdoors show presented by Mossberg. This segment of the program brought to you by SCI and the 2024 convention, which takes place in Nashville, January 31st through February 3rd. It's not too late to get your tickets. Actually, it's not a capped event. So come and uh, take, take part in this event where the entire global hunting community will converge in Music City for four days. It's going to be great. I plan on booking a couple hunts there, uh, running into old friends, making new friends. It's awesome. So uh, hopefully you can make plans to attend. For more info, head over to safariclub.org. Let's talk a little fishing with Texas Parks and Wildlife's Inland Fisheries, Isaiah Ringen. Thanks for being here, man. Thank you for having me, Cable. It's a pleasure to be here. My pleasure, man. Uh, so first of all, tell me where you're at. I know we were having a little audio difficulty and, and you said the building you're in was built in the fifties. It's a, a steel building. So where are you? Yeah, it's, it might be even older than that. I'm not exactly sure on that one, but uh, I'm out here at eight wood hatcheries, which is a Texas parks and wildlife hatchery in San Marcos. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, we raise a lot of different fish for the state um, to be introduced to all over the place. Yeah. It's a lot of so, fun. So tell me what are the most popular fish that you you guys raise uh where, where are our uh, dollars going when we're buying a fishing our, yeah so um probably the most that we uh put out here uh is channel catfish that goes into a lot of neighborhood ponds we raise channel cats we raise uh hybrid striped bass we'll um we'll import in uh rainbow trout we also do largemouth bass uh lone star bass specifically um, and then we raise several other species of forage as well. So we do quite a bit out here. Lone star bass yeah. is so, I mean, Guadalupe bass is our state fish and you're right there in that area. Correct. Is that the same, is that the same thing we're talking about? So no, actually, occasionally we do, uh, Guadalupe bass spawning as well, but lone star bass, that is actually, um, the grandchildren of the share lunker program. Oh, okay. And yes, so those are the grandchildren of that, and they are specifically selected to uh, that they're they're all only Florida strain largemouth, 
They do a lot of genealogy testing that. on how them. We to took make... Florida's best bass and now we renamed it the Lone Star Bass. <laughs> Isn't it Screw great? A... <laughs> <laughs> I know. We do Florida better than Florida. Um, but uh, yeah, it's super cool. And uh, what they do is they'll also look at the genealogy of the fish so that there's no inbreeding. Um, so there's no problems with that. Um, they try to make it as distinct as possible. Um, and then we raise, we release them all over the state. It's a very, very cool program. Mm-hmm. Oh, and it's been a couple years ago. I can't recall who I was visiting with specifically on the show, uh, probably the head of Inland Fisheries at the time. But we talked about um, how smallmouth bass were in the Guadalupe and how they were, you know, they're more aggressive and uh, they were displacing and, and overtaking that native habitat of the Guadalupe bass. Did they kill all the fish in, in certain stretches of the river to try to get them out of there so that they could reintroduce quads? You know, uh, if I remember correctly, they did do some electrosocking on there. Um, and we have been putting in uh, Guadalupe pier strains in there to kind of yeah. re-dilute the population back to its native state. Um, I assume that that's going really well this year because uh, our hatchery, I I believe, is not raising any Guadalupe bass this year. So I believe the biologists have deemed it unnecessary. So that recovery program has gone extremely well. Well, that's great to hear. Nothing to get smallies, but hey, I mean, we gotta we gotta have our guads in there. Yeah, state fish. Yeah. Um, well, cool on that front. Right. And... Exactly. I mean, there's still plenty of great places to catch smallies too. Yeah. Um. I mean, Lake Te- Lake Texoma, which is just a stone's throw from me. Um. You know, on the Texas Oklahoma border, they have some really good smallmouth fishing certain times of the year. Um. But let's. They sure um, do. Let's talk about. What we really want to talk about today is the stocking program. And you mentioned Channel Cats is really a focus for you guys. And I have to believe that the entire stocking program really centers, you know, at its core about getting people fishing, right? Like opportunity. Because anyone can go out to a reservoir. But when you guys put them in local community lakes and ponds, I mean that's designed to make it super convenient for the angler, uh, you know, as far as increased opportunity goes. That's absolutely the point of this program. So um, during the winter, we have these neighborhood fishing ponds. Um, We stock them with rainbow trout, which is what we're doing right now. And then during the summer, they get stocked with channel cats to provide year-round sport fishing opportunities for people who might not otherwise have that opportunity. Mm -hmm. Um, So make it super accessible, get more people into the sport. Um, and just increase awareness of uh, the value of our wildlife. Well, and you use the word opportunity, which we all know is the biggest limiting factor among hunters and anglers. So does Texas Parks and Wildlife put an emphasis on urban areas, maybe of a lower economic makeup, where maybe they don't have the ability to hire a guide and certainly don't have a boat and... Uh, but hey, it's real convenient for me to walk to this pond right here in my community and uh, take my, my kid fishing and introduce them into the sport. Yeah, of course. Um, we stock all over the state too. So obviously all the public bodies of water, but the real kind of ticker on that is public. It must have public access. Uh-huh. And so a lot of these neighborhood fishing ponds and stuff like that are added ways to get more public exposure to the sport so instead of maybe having to get a kayak or you know hire a guide or make a trip out to some popular reservoir you can go to a neighborhood park pond so um i'm from san antonio so we have a couple that are really popular down there miller's park pond um 
and uh, Village Pond, and mm-hmm. um, we also have Southside Lines. It's on the south side of town. I remember growing up and fishing some of those ponds myself, even. Um, super neat places, you know, just close to neighborhoods where you can just get down there and fish as a kid, you know. So mm-hmm. it's a great opportunity. And when we go out and stock a lot of these places, um, I do, I see a lot of dads with their kiddos and stuff like that, or all old retired guys, and they're they're so much fun to talk to. And um, they're always super appreciative. We're out there stocking, yeah. and uh, it's really cool just to kind of see people in, enjoying our hard work, you know, in in the fullest way possible. Oh, for sure. The fruits of your labor, right? In the flesh. Where do we, so, so right now, you know, it's winter time and that's when you guys are stocking rainbow trout, which are not native to Texas. It's too hot here by and large. So let's go back in time and just talk about the history of the, the trout specifically. Like when did we start doing this? So we started stocking trout in Texas, um, in 1966. Oh, and wow. that started out with just, uh, yeah, so it's been a while. It's been around for a while, but it's it's certainly scaled up. So in 1966, we started with four different sites and 10,000 fish. Mm. And this year, we're projected to stock 209 sites with a total of 433,000 rainbow trap. Oh, wow. Yeah, so uh, it's 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 one of our most successful programs now. Um, it's it's a fantastic program. It. It has something for everyone too, especially with the rainbow trout. Even like young kids can catch them. Um, people who want to fly fish, maybe more experienced in the sport, they can go out and catch them. It's kind of a, it's kind of a, a really great fish for any level of skill. Honestly, you can uh, make it as simple or as uh, as advanced as you want it to be, yeah. and the fish adapt to that as well. So, yeah, uh, I like to fly fish. Um, it's a labor of love, obviously, but there's nothing better for me. <laughs> catching a trout in a stream on a, on a fly line. But also, um, last time I went fish, uh, trout fishing in New Mexico, they had no interest in, in any type of fly. And my dad's not a fly fisherman. He's over there with some pink power bait and just reeling one in after another. And we're at this mountain lake in New Mexico. I was like, screw this fly rod. Give me one of those. I mean, because I, we were in, you know, we were backpacking. I was like, I want to eat some trout. So, uh, yeah, they couldn't lay off the power bait, but you just talked about how it can be easy, yeah. you know, or it can be difficult. It can be whatever you want it to be, really. Um, but uh, my dad's more into catching than than standing there for hours on end. Well, my dad's the same way. Yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. Isaiah, let's take a quick break. I want to come back and find out where we get the trout, uh, how you guys keep them alive. Uh, you know, how is the how is the hatchery set up? for this non-native fish to thrive until it's time to be stocked we'll talk recipes and oh and then what size are these fish that you guys are stocking all that much more coming up here in just a second that segment brought to you by rustic reminders taxidermy they've got locations in san antonio and marion they're in the hill country um josh just told me this past week they are looking to hire full-time or part-time taxidermists they are they've got a lot of work and uh you know it's hard to find good help. So if that's you, if you're listening to the show and you have experience in taxidermy, reach out to Rustic Reminders. You can find them at gr, the number 8 mountscom We'll be right back on the Lone Star Outdoors show.
Chris Letzinger, online sales manager at Cinnamon Creek Ranch here, reminding you we're not your typical archery club. We're a one-of-a-kind archery facility with indoor and outdoor ranges, a full pro shop, and six different 3D courses. Cinnamon Creek was designed by hunters for hunters. Located in Roanoke, Texas, we have over 200 3D targets to hone your archery skills. Call 817-439-8998 or visit us at cinnamoncreekranch.com to visit our new online store. That's cinnamoncreekranch.com. I got peace of mind and elbow room. I love to smell the sage in bloom. I catch a rainbow on my fishing line. We got county fairs and rodeos. Ain't a better place for my kids to grow. Just turn them loose in the western summertime. A little Chris Ledoux bringing us back on SCI's Lone Star Outdoors show presented by Mossberg. Cable Smith here with you. Thanks for being here today. We're still talking rainbow trout with Texas Parks and Wildlife's Isaiah Ringen, and we will continue that conversation in just a sec. This segment, though, brought to you by Big and J Whitetail Attractants and Armasite. Step into the dark with confidence. Armasite brings you the power to own the night. Precision optics, rugged design, and the clarity you demand. Don't just see, experience. Armasite, illuminate your path. Visit armasite.com for more info. All right. Uh, well, Isaiah, thanks for sticking around. I guess my next and most obvious question regarding our trout stocking program is where do we get the rainbow trout? So we get the trout from Crystal Lake Fisheries, which is in Missouri. And okay. uh, they start sending them to us uh, about a, around like a week before Thanksgiving. And we bring them here to our hatchery. And we have um, these super long concrete tanks, about three foot deep and about three foot wide. And quite long i'll say uh, maybe like 100 feet at least um and we call them raceways and so we're constantly so- cycling water through there and uh, we raise them in these raceways until they're ready to go out to these different locations to be stocked so usually they're they're here at the hatchery for a few weeks or so before they end up going out to their respective rivers or ponds or wherever we're stocking them and how big are these fish? So Texas Parks typically stocks fish in the 8 to 10 inch range, um, as well as 10 to 12. But there are outliers in all of that. Um, sure. You know, some some are a little bit smaller. Some are much bigger. Uh, those are my favorite ones to see when they pop in. Like, you know, a, a five pounder slips into the shipment and you're like, oh, wow, <laughs> that's a big fish. Um, yeah. yeah, it's, it's kind of cool. Uh, my buddies are always like, Hey man, where are you stocking the big fish? I was like, <laughs> you'll have to find out, I guess. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so, uh, it, it's, it's very neat, but yeah, we try to, we shoot for that sort of size range as a catchable size. Um, so, uh, yeah, like eight to 10 and 10 to 12, um, are usually what we ask for. Okay. What is their life expectancy if they're not caught when the water in the springtime, certainly summer starts, you know, getting into the high seventies. Um, what are these? I mean, these fish aren't going to live. I've heard that there's places where like where you are specifically in, in hill country river systems, maybe below the Canyon Lake dam where these fish, some, some people claim they do survive the year. They're not breeding obviously, but, uh, there are some holdovers. Can you confirm if that's true? And, and then also talk about, you know, how long these fish realistically will live if they're not caught. Yeah. So the answer to your question, honestly, is 
platforms. I don't know. Uh, most of them, the vast majority of them, will probably expire. We expect them to expire around like June. So if they if they make it six months, um, we're impressed. Um, okay. Really, with the most of the locations that these are going in, like these neighborhood park ponds, um, they just can't sustain rainbow trout in their favored temperature tolerances year round. Yeah. And the idea is that we're providing it to be caught by the public and things like that. We're not trying to establish breeding populations in Texas or anything like that. Um, I have yeah, it's really heard... cool because they're not native, so you don't want them really to establish breeding populations, right? Um, going exactly. Back to why we're trying to remove the smallmouth from the the home stretch from from the Guadalupe for our, our state fish. So it's convenient that they end up dying, I guess. Yeah, in a manner of speaking, I suppose. Um, yeah, it's uh, their life expectancy is low in Texas. Uh, I've also heard the rumors as well that they they survive. Um, they can. It is true that they can survive um, if they find some deep holes. We have some mild summers. Um, that yeah, they yeah. can survive, but not enough to support any sort of functional population. Yeah. Between the temperatures, other people catching them, predators, whatever does survive, it's a very, very small percentage of what originally went in. So. Mm-hmm. And this is an interesting question. If someone that's had aquariums and kept fish, tropical fish, my entire life, and so you go to the store and buy the fish and it comes home in a bag and then you have to introduce water from your tank into the bag to acclimate the fish to, you know, that specific pH and, and water quality. You guys just dump these fish in. And so maybe there's, maybe you could just do the same with aquarium fish. I don't know. Maybe they're more finicky, but do you guys get a bunch of dead loss when you dump the fish into a new uh, water body? There's no, uh, you know, let's slowly introduce, you know, you'll just take a big tube and shoot them in there. <laughs> yeah, so something we do prior to shooting them is uh, we bring water quality probes with us and we test uh-huh. the water that we have on board and the water that we're about to introduce them in. And essentially, we want them to match up as closely as possible. So if they're outside a certain range, we might temper the fish for a little bit, like you were saying. Just a uh-huh. larger scale of that will circulate water into um, the trailer. Okay. Um, for the most part with rainbow trout, uh, especially during the winter, um most of these places that we're stocking these fish in those temperature ranges and things like that are falling with well within those you know marginal difference range so once we get the go ahead we test the water we're good we'll release the fish okay but if it does fall outside of that range we might have to take other steps or not stock entirely it just depends on how severe the difference is but you have the ability to circulate water into the trailer and kind of introduce it that way yeah, we can uh, we can sort of temper them a variety of ways. Um, okay. Fish that get tempered pretty frequently are like when we stock redfish and calaveras or red drum. Uh-huh. Um, you know, transitioning them to a uh, freshwater environment that takes several hours. Um, okay. So it just does depend on the species, the circumstance, the time of year. All of those decisions um, are just kind of are sort of made on those bases. Why do we choose rainbow trout over other trout species? Well, um, you may or may not know, but uh, we, we have tried a few different species before um, in the past for stocking. Um, but rainbow trout have seemed to be, A, the most easily accessible species, um, just for numbers-wise, but also um, they seem to have kind of done the best 
And again, we're also, you know, again, not trying to establish a new species living in Texas, you know, year round all the time. So we wanted to also find a species that a lot of people are familiar with too, right? Um, you can go to the store and buy channel catfish. You can also go to the store and buy rainbow trout. Right. Um, we wanted something that the public would also resonate with as well. So a, a familiar game fish, so to speak. Mm -hmm. um, what, what are some of the fun events that you guys do that support the winter trout stocking? So a lot of those events are, are actually on the municipal level. Texas uh -huh. Parks and Wildlife does participate in them. Um, they'll have sometimes their fishing tournaments, um, sometimes their seminars. There's, um, yeah, like how-tos and all sorts of things like that. Uh, and Texas Parks will participate in that. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if there's any off the top of my head that are entirely like Texas Parks, but uh, we do take tons of partnerships because uh, most of these fish, um, a lot of these fish are being requested and then the biologists will sort of will assess the uh, requests yeah. and then we partner with them to get the fish to the, so it's usually this, the, the municipalities that are kind of, um, that are sort of yeah, well, yeah, making but, those okay. so you're supporting requests by... and setting up those events. Yeah. Well, you're supplying the fish, so it doesn't happen yeah. without you guys. So, um, I know, so I, I live in we, McKinney we, and we have, we, uh... we also participate. Okay. Um, so more than just stocking the fish, but we have a town lake right. here in McKinney um, we'll, we'll and there's a, there's a fishing derby. I think, I don't know if it's like the, the day that you stock them, maybe it's, it's the week of or whatever, but we have like a, a kid friendly, uh, fishing derby here, right here in, in our town lake in McKinney. And that, I guess that's the, more of the city that's hosting that. Obviously you guys supplying the, the trout. Yeah, and I believe uh, also it, it, again it kind of depends on on the situation, but uh, we we've come out to those events as well, um, shown people how to how to fish, um, how to clean fish, things like that. Um, we'll we'll kind of take these partnerships and go out there and help support them and uh, show out for that. I, I did actually just we uh, made a run up to Waco. And uh, we stocked at a pond, and the next day they were having a fishing tournament there. Mm -hmm. There were a lot of people there that were kind of scoping it out beforehand, you know, watching us stock. Uh, a lot of kids came out to kind of see us, you know, flush all the fish into their park pond. And they were pretty excited to see all that. It was neat. It's really fun. And you all encourage anglers to keep their fish, I mean, up to their limit. Take them home and eat them. These things aren't going to survive. You don't want them to survive. Absolutely. Yeah. The full spectrum, you know, from, uh, from the body of water to your plate, you know, um, and that's why rainbow trout are so great for them. Um, because we know they're, you know, they've got an expiration date. And so, uh, we want people to get out there and catch those fish and take them home and eat them. And, uh, hopefully that introduces, you know, some people to the sport and grows on and they go up, you know, go on to fish for other things and get more involved in conservation and, fishing and hunting and all that stuff. So uh, it's kind of like a, a great little entryway in there for sure. So as we are wrapping up, Isaiah, give me your favorite trout recipe. Yeah. So, Ooh, that's kind of a hard one. Cause I like it. There's, there's two different ways. Um, if I'm not taking the time to debone it, um, I'll probably do it whole in the oven. I'll, I'll do a prepare a little marinade. Um, I'll soak the fish in it and then I'll, I'll stuff it with peppers and onions and, uh, some lemons and cook it in the oven. 
or if I have the fillets and they're deboned, um, I'll do like a pesto parmesan crust on it. So I'll I'll I'll, I'll coat the fillets in, in a pesto sauce, and then I'll take grated parmesan and pack it on there, almost like it's being breaded in it. And uh, I'll either bake that or air fry it. And it's so good. Oh, I like that. I haven't tried that. It's but, um, so good. <laughs> I don't think I've ever purchased a rainbow trout at the store, but I go backpacking in New Mexico <laughs> every year, and we always catch rain. Well, some years New Mexico <laughs> game and fish is slacking on their stocking program, and I get it. Like th these mountain lakes are ten, you know, at ten thousand feet in elevation, so they have to helicopter the fish in, uh, and sometimes they don't, and you find or by plane, <laughs> or by plane. Okay, yeah. Um, but anyway, there's years where it's like, man, I don't think they've stocked this thing lately. But uh, this past year, it was well, there was a ton of fish. And my favorite way is uh, we'll, we'll catch them, obviously, you know, uh, gut them, and then cook them whole with the bones in, wrap them in foil. And the camp chef on this, this trip I've been going on for 20 years, he always has, I think it's called, uh, what is it? What's in the blue thing? It's like parquet butter. It's for the pancakes, really. Well, we get that and we just oh. douse the fish with that fake butter, put some uh, Cajun seasoning in there, and then cook it on an open flame wrapped in foil. Oh, man, it's so that's, good. That's the way to do it. That sounds yeah. great. Yeah, I, no, that's yeah. awesome. The chemical yeah, butter no. is the key. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's something about it, man. It's just you know it's bad for you, but you can't help it. You're just yeah. like, it's just so good. Yeah. So good. Well, man, I appreciate the time today. I want to uh, thank Texas Parks and Wildlife um, for, you know, this effort that, like you said, goes back to 1966. I did not realize there was so much history there. Uh, but uh, the Inland Fisheries Division always trying to increase angler opportunity and participation. Uh, I encourage folks to, uh, and, you, and you can go to Texas Parks and Wildlife. That, this is something, actually, I'll let you take this. But where can folks go to find if and where trout are being stocked in their area? Yes, of course. So you can go to Texas Parks and Wildlife website, um, scroll down a little bit, it'll say, uh, we'll have our little trout stocking page there. You can click that and uh, it'll show you a map of all the sites that we're stocking and when we're stocking. So you can uh, you can figure out when you want to show up for that. There's a lot of places that get stocked fairly routinely, um, at least in my area. So if any of y'all are listening or in the San Antonio area, the tail race of the Guadalupe that gets stocked pretty much every Friday um so and and there's plenty of places all over the state like i said 209 locations that are being stocked this year many of them are being stocked multiple times to mm. so go out there and catch those fish for us right on well hey last question and i know that you guys communicate fairly regularly with other state fish and game agencies um are there a lot of states that stock rainbow trout specifically other than texas Oh yeah, uh, off the top of my head, I probably I, I couldn't like list them off, but uh -huh. there are many state agencies all over the country that do stock rainbow trout as well, um, even out in California. So yeah. um, those trout are huge. Those big stock in those California lakes, they're monsters. Um, but yeah, all over the country they get stocked. It's it's one of the most commonly stocked fish. So uh, you'll 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 many states have stocking programs. Well, I appreciate it, man. Thanks for your time today. And y'all go out there and uh, take a kid fishing. Yes, sir. All righty. You have a good one, Cable. So there you have it. Texas Parks and Wildlife, uh, Inland Fisheries, Isaiah Ringen. Um, I think we're going to do a follow-up interview. There's a lot more history. on, And you wouldn't even believe some of the stuff he told me off the air that Texas Parks and Wildlife has tried to stock over the years. Uh, 
things like musky, Nile perch, peacock bass. A lot of this occurred in the 70s. He said it was a wild time in wildlife management back then. But uh, thankfully, <laughs> those didn't take. Uh, but yeah, and also, what are they going to do about these armored catfish, uh, placostomus for the aquarium folks out there that are overrunning some of our streams and uh, and river systems? Interesting resolution that they've come up with that uh, I think y'all will find fascinating. Uh, but yes, we will we'll do that probably next month. But uh, I think that's going to be a fascinating conversation. Unfortunately, we are out of time for today. Uh, that segment was brought to you by Black Rifle Coffee and All Seasons Feeders and Blinds. Thanks to all of our sponsors for making this show possible. Thanks to Isaiah as well as Marshall and Trey Colvin for their contribution to today's program. Thanks to you, the listener, for being a part of SCI's Lone Star Outdoor Show. Until next time, I'm Cable Smith saying y'all have a great week in the outdoors. Sending you this postcard to tell you that I'm fine. And let you know wherever I go, you never leave my mind.